Looking at our world from a theological perspective, this is the Theology Central Podcast, making Theology Central. Good afternoon, everyone. It is Sunday, April the 17th, 2022. It is currently 2.51 p.m. Central Time, and I'm coming to you live from Abilene, Texas. Well, I hope everyone is having a great day. Many of you may refer to today as Easter Sunday. Others of you may refer to today as Resurrection Sunday. And some of you may not even care one way or the other. Whatever you're doing today, I hope you're having a great day. I hope things have gone well if you are listening live. If you're not listening live whenever you hear this, well, I hope your day, your evening, your morning is going well. And as always, we greatly appreciate you tuning in. Now, it's a, it's a Sunday afternoon. And I, I am, it is interesting because today is Easter, is Resurrection Sunday. I, I noticed something today. Typically, this is the day that a lot of churches talk about how many people show up that you haven't seen since last Easter, right? Or maybe you haven't seen since Christmas. People will show up for Christmas service, they'll show up for Easter service, and then you don't see them the rest of the year. Churches always talk about this. There's articles always written about it. It's just a strange phenomenon. It's like, Nothing to do with church. Oh, Christmas time, show up for church. Nothing to do with church. Easter, show up for church. It, it's an interesting phenomenon. You know, people have their reasons, they have their explanations. But what I found fascinating today is that today is a day which is known for people actually attending you know, a physical service. Those numbers are usually very high today. Our online listening today reached an all-time low. So maybe the reason people weren't listening to us today is because they all went to a church. That That's that's an interesting. So, well, next Sunday, all of our numbers go back up. I, I don't really know. It, it was it was somewhat an interesting uh, and kind of a, a fascinating thing to see. I, it's not a scientific study. I'm not drawing any conclusions. It was just weird that if you look at, I mean, consistently our numbers, you know, are are pretty high for our online listening on a Sunday morning. And today it was like almost non-existent. It was really, 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 really strange. Now we did have have some weird things going on with the Spreaker app. At least uh, I think think one person, maybe more, uh, talked about how the, the audio wasn't showing up on Spreaker. So maybe that that reflects why the numbers were low, or maybe Spreaker is just way behind in reporting uh, statistics. We will have to see. But, uh, you know, you, you can draw your own conclusions about that and, and what it may mean. But we're not here to talk about that. We're here to talk about, well, teaching the Bible. All right. A lot of people went to church today and they heard a sermon. A lot of people go to church and they hear lots of Bible teaching. A lot of people listen to a lot of Bible teaching online. And typically when you refer to Bible teaching, there's a lot of emphasis on teaching people what the Bible actually says. That the goal of Bible teaching is teaching the people what the Bible says based off the words that are actually used, right? Here is what this text says. Here is what it means. Teaching people what the Bible says. Well, the other day I came across an article with this headline, teach them what the Bible doesn't say. And as soon as I saw the article, I just reached over and said, save, save to my notes 
because we need to talk about that because I found the title somewhat interesting. Now, I don't know which direction they're going to go. I love to do this. I love to grab something and just talk about it in real time. It's very organic. It's very, very real. Now, sometimes this this is negative because I don't know what's, I don't know where they're going to go with this. So we may either agree, we may disagree, but I just like working through different things live on the air with you. It's, it's, I like that idea that you're just sitting down and we're just sitting down together discussing an article or listening to a sermon or whatever we may be reacting to. So that this is definitely set up that way. I started looking at the article and then I stopped and said, nope, I'm just going to save this because I just think it's an interesting concept, right? I need to teach you what the Bible says, but is it also the responsibility of a pastor, Christian podcaster, teacher, whatever the case may be, to also teach people what the Bible doesn't say? What would be the need to teach you what the Bible doesn't say? Is it possible that you can teach people what the Bible actually says, and they can still walk away with some weird concept that's not in the Bible. So do you have to say, here's what the Bible actually says, and oh, by the way, the Bible doesn't say this, it doesn't say that, it doesn't say this, it doesn't say that, it doesn't say this, it doesn't say that, it doesn't say this. You have to then make a list of all the things the Bible doesn't say. Is it possible that people can take something that's in the Bible, hold on to it, and then at the very same time hold on to an idea that the Bible does not teach? Is 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 that a possibility? Do they see that maybe they're holding on to two contradictory concepts at the same time? Is that what this article is even trying to say? Well, let's dig in and let's find out on this Sunday afternoon. Hopefully you're having a good day. I've got a bottle of water right here. I'm going to take a drink. So I got a bottle of water. Hopefully you have something to drink. Sit back. Here we go. Let's dig in. Let's see. Well, we definitely don't want that. All right, I, I tapped on the article, and the article changed into a different article, and I'm like, oh, no, I'm live on the air. Okay, I, I was able to press the back button and find it. Here we go. Teach them what the Bible doesn't say. This was published April the 14th, 2022. I think I discovered it uh, maybe two days ago, I think is when I discovered it, and again, I saved it, and I, I think this will be interesting. This was uh, written by Dan Crabtree. Dan Crabtree, have no idea who that is. Teach them what the Bible doesn't say. Any parent with young kids know this principle well. All right, so here we go. Any, anyone who's a parent and you have kids, you know the following principle very well. It's something that I guess just every parent quickly catches on to. And here is the principle. Instructions need boundaries. You can give the instruction, but with the instruction, you also have to give some kind of boundary. Let's see their justification for this concept and why supposedly all parents know this principle. It's right and godly to tell your little one, be kind to your brother. It's even biblical. And yet, Those precious little sin-filled hearts always try to find a loophole, don't they? Hence the need for boundaries like, when I told you to be kind to your brother, that meant not no shoving crayons into his ear. So in other words, you can teach them a, a, a good 
uh, a good, you can instruct them with something good and something right, but you've got to come along and also give them boundaries. Be kind. All right, there's the instruction. And what you need to understand is that if you're going to be kind, then you will not shove crayons into your brother's or your sister's ears. All right. Are we kind of getting the principle here? The instruction needs a boundary. Simply saying be kind, or maybe we should say this, every instruction needs an explanation or every instruction needs clear application and clarification. Well, I'm I'm trying to think of this from a hermeneutical perspective. In other words, we can get a principle, but then we have to go beyond the principle, mainly because whenever we preach or teach the Bible, whenever we read or study the Bible, it's our sin-filled hearts that look for loopholes and look for ways around it or ignore it. Is that where they're going with this? Let's see. So let me read this again. It's right and godly to tell your little ones, be kind to your brother. It's even biblical. And yet, those precious little sin-filled hearts always try to find a loophole, don't they? Hence the need for boundaries, like, when I told you to be kind to your brother, that meant no shoving crayons in his ear. Bedtime at 8 p.m. means no jumping on the bed at 9 p.m. Eating all your food means not throwing your food on the floor. Sometimes a positive command needs some clarification. So a positive command needs clarification. Do you think, and 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 I'm really, obviously, I'm really trying to get this to the idea of a biblical interpretation, biblical application, preaching and teaching. Whenever you, when you, whenever you see in scripture, a positive command Do you need to stop and think about the clarification to this? Or do you have a tendency to just take the command and then, in a sense, go go around violating it because you did not get the clarification? Or you try to find a loophole? The, The article goes on to say this. That instruction need boundaries. That instructions need boundaries. It's true with commands from parents, And it is true with biblical commands as well. Now, they're making a very dogmatic assertion here, all right, that instructions need boundaries. This is true whenever a parent gives a command. They've got to give some boundaries. But they say this is also true with biblical commands. That whenever we open the Bible and there is a biblical command, it needs boundaries. It needs clarification. Let's see what they say here. They say, but this principle, so that's the basic principle, that commands need boundaries. Commands need boundaries. That's the principle they're really trying to put forth. But they go on to say this principle extends beyond the do's and don'ts of Christianity to the intellectual affirmations of the faith. Not only do we need to be given boundaries for our conduct, but we need boundaries in our thinking as well, especially our thinking about God and his word. They assert that not only whenever we read the Bible and there is a command, we need boundaries. Whenever it comes to affirmations of the faith, when it comes to something, a truth about God or a truth about his word, we need boundaries there as well. Which seemingly says, what this seems to be saying is that because 
it, it, it almost implies there's something inside of us that simply a command, simply an affirmation about the faith, simply an affirmation about God's word is not sufficient in, in this way because we will then look for some way around it or we will do something almost opposed to it while still affirming that supposed truth or that command. Let, let's see what where they go with this. They go on to say, I'm reminded of this need whenever a new study or poll reveals the abysmal state of theological beliefs among American evangelicals. So according to this person, whenever they see one of these polls, one of these studies that talk about the abysmal theology of American evangelicals, whenever these come out like, man, Christian American evangelicals don't believe this they're confused here. They're confused here that this to this person reminds them that see, yes, they may have been taught a positive affirmation of the faith, something about Christianity, something about God, but they were not given boundaries. So therefore, it, they are holding to these completely contrary ideas that are incorrect and wrong. And so they're arguing that the problem is they need boundaries. Okay. I'm trying to follow this. They give, for instance, or for an example, they point to Ligonier's 2020 State of Theology. So Ligonier's ministry, I guess almost, I think it's done yearly. They released their State of Theology. What is going on in the evangelical church? What is going on in American Christianity? I think it typically focuses on America. So from in the 2020 State of Theology, it indicated that 33% of American evangelical respondents strongly agree, this is 33%, strongly agree that God accepts the worship of all religions. Wait a minute, wait a minute. Where, where would you get the idea that God accepts the worship of all religions? You think that if they're an American evangelical, they have been taught some things in scripture that would seem to indicate that's not the case. So other, in, in, in other words, not only do you have to teach them what the Bible says, you have to then come along and say, the Bible does not say that God accepts the, the worship of all religions. In other words, do you have, not only do you have to give the positive affirmation, do you have to then put a boundary and say, the Bible is not saying this. Now, sometimes you think it should just be a logical conclusion. Well, if the Bible says this, then clearly that's not acceptable but our Americans, I think I see where the issue is going here, but let's follow this. All right, so, so 33% of American evangelical respondents strongly agree that God accepts the worship of all religions. And that 26% of the same strongly agree that Jesus was a great teacher, but he was not God. So you have 33% of American evangelicals who say God accepts the worship of all religions, and 26% say Jesus was a great teacher, but was not God. Now, when you read these kinds of stats, the article goes on to say, uh, and he, the author is speaking of himself, I'm obviously skeptical about the self-label evangelical, but I'm even more concerned about how poor the Bible teaching is that so many receive. Now, let's stop right here. I do agree that Typically, what people do when they hear these statistics, they're like, well, those people are not even Christians. They're not even true Christians. It's just ridiculous. And, and we always discount these disturbing numbers. Christians always want to find a way just to dis be dismissive. Don't worry about it. No big deal. I got better things to do. 
At some point, I think these disturbing numbers, because year after year they come out, someone's going to have to get bothered by them more than just to dismiss them and say, well, they're not even Christians. Well, pretty soon the only person going to be a Christian is you. And well, I mean, you know, and then then one day you're going to look in the mirror and realize that maybe not, you're not even a Christian. That I think we should be bothered. Something is wrong inside the church. Now they go on to say, but they are concerned, even more concerned about the how poor the Bible teaching is that so many receive. Apparently, scores of people have been told to believe in Jesus to be saved, but have not been told that belief in a mere human Jesus will only further merit the real God-man's wrath. They have heard whoever confessed that Jesus is the Son of God abides in him and he in God, but they have not heard whosoever does not believe God has made him, uh, whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony of God as born concerning his Son. If our instructions need boundaries, then so too does our biblical instruction. Whether you're a pastor, Sunday school teacher, or a parent with kids at home, wisdom would call us to consider both angles as we teach. If we want their minds to firmly grasp positive biblical truths, then we need to show them the the negatively to show them negatively what those truths exclude. Another way to say it, teach them what the Bible says by teaching them what the Bible doesn't say. All right. There's a lot to unpack there. And they their translation of 1 John, I think it's 1 John 5, 10. Who, uh, who, whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has born concerning his son. Okay. All right. It just, it looked weird when I first read it. Um, so they're saying that our, that our instructions need boundaries. That this is the typical pr- basic principle. That whatever instruction you give, you need boundaries. Now, they seem to imply in the article that the reason we need these boundaries is because of sin in the heart. All right, we'll try to find a loophole. All right. Then they take that and say, our biblical instruction also needs boundaries. Now, they said, whether you're a pastor or a Sunday school teacher or a parent with kids at home, wisdom calls you to consider both angles as we teach. If we want their minds to firmly grasp positive biblical truths, then we need to show them negatively what these truths exclude. Or another way to say it, teaching them what the Bible says by teaching them what the Bible doesn't say. Now, I was somewhat going a different direction when I read the title. It seems what they're saying is for every positive affirmation, for every positive affirmation, for every do for, for every positive, for everything that says do this, you've got to take the time to say, okay, this positive affirmation, that's what it means in a positive way, but in a negative way, it is saying that this is wrong, this is wrong, this is wrong. If it's saying that you do this, it's you. that means you cannot do this. What it seems to be implying is that maybe, now they're not stating this explicitly, but this is what it, to me is being implied, whether this was the intention of the author or not, that in American evangelicalism, maybe the emphasis is always such on a positive presentation, positive, 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 that we avoid the negative 
consequences of what we're saying. In other words, if I say Jesus is God and there's only one true God, right, then I'm excluding any other claims of deity. If I say Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, then there is no other way. There is no other truth. There is no other life. Jesus is it. In other words, to, to make one positive affirmation, I'm excluding, and that there are negative things as a result of that positive. And American Christianity seems very, I will argue, hesitant to point out the negative. And if all you do is point out the positive, it seems that there are those within the evangelical world who will accept the positive truth claim, but not exclude anything else. They'll say, yeah, okay, I accept that but i'm not going to exclude that 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 worship or that faith or that doctrine or that theology because it it's always about a positive thing now the article's not stating those words but it's clearly seeming to say there's a problem here and they're saying we need to put boundaries so what they're saying we need to do is that we teach them what the bible says by teaching them what the bible doesn't say Here's some, they offer some examples here. Here are a few reasons why we should adopt this teaching principle whenever the Lord, wherever the Lord has assigned you to communicate the truths of his word. Now, they're really focused at teachers. I want to just focus on the average Christian studying the Bible. When you see that positive affirmation, do you immediately conclude the negative results of such a positive affirmation? If you make this claim, you're excluding this, this, and this, and this. You're condemning this, 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 and this. Do, do you acknowledge that? Do you see that? All right. They go on to say this. The transcendence of divine truth demands. Now, this is very important. The transcendence of divine truth. And if you hear all of that noise in the background, it's uh, someone on a motorcycle making lots of noise. The transcendence of divine truth demands what the Bible doesn't say. Now, now, see, in my mind, I was going with this idea that I think sometimes I was going this from a completely different perspective. I was thinking of it that there's a lot of Christians who holds to maybe ideas about like, okay, if, if this happens, this is the consequences. And the consequences are not even laid out in the Bible. If you do this, this is what ha- that that's not even said in the Bible. This is a sin, and the Bible doesn't really spec- specify that as a sin. You can't do this, and the Bible doesn't really say you can't do that. I, I, I was thinking of it more in lines. We got to teach people what the Bible doesn't say because the people come along and just add all kinds of things to God's word. Like they add this, they add this, they add this. And you're like, where did you get that idea? Where did you get, I like, just, I don't even know. I was reading an article. It was about some pastor had done something. And they're like, well, this pastor should receive these consequences because remember, David, he committed sin and he wasn't allowed to build the temple. And you're like, well, well wait, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. So you're, you're going to take this historical narrative of David not being allowed to build the temple. And now you're going to make a rule for all pastors. But you seem to really forget that the next person who built the temple was a serial adulterer, a serial polygamist, uh, and ended up an idolater. Not only did he build the temple, he wrote scripture. And even though that David didn't build the temple, you do know he was, he was used by God to write scripture, right? You do know that he, he may not have been able to build the temple, but he wrote those Psalms 
that you 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 read and you teach and you sing, right? I mean, like, and and Solomon, like, it's just so weird. Like, they just arbitrarily add things, and you're like, where where did you get them? Well, come up with these rules. Well, if you do this, this must happen. According to whom? According to you. And then they just pull it from some weird, like, and you're just you you you've got ideas that are not in the Bible. I was thinking it this way that we've got to teach people what the Bible doesn't say because people will add and add and add, just like the Pharisees and the Sadducees adding rules that like, yes, here's the rule in the Bible, and then they come along and here's like 30 more rules to clarify that rule in the Bible. So I was thinking, like, we got to teach people what it doesn't say because we get a lot of Christians running around with concepts that are not in the Bible. So that's that's more the idea that I was thinking. They're going more in the direction that when we give, when we teach what the Bible does say, we have to demonstrate the negative consequences of saying that. If we say this positive thing, Jesus saves. Well, the negative of that. No one else does. Jesus saves. Well, if I don't have Jesus, I don't have salvation. What are the negative consequences? They seeming to be implying that there's too there's too much of the positive, the positive in evangelical and evangelicalism, and nobody wants to deal with the negative. It's been said this way: the problem with some churches is not what they say. They say a lot of good things. They say a lot of godly things. It's what they will never say that's the problem. They will never say this. They will never point this out. That's the problem. And this makes it very hard when you're talking to someone about their church because you can't necessarily point to something positively they said and say, well, that's heresy. It's just what's never mentioned, never talked about. The negatives are always avoided like the plague. Well, yeah, that that would be that's this is the direction the article seems to go. They make this claim: the transcendence of divine truth demands what the Bible doesn't say. Truth is razor sharp. To describe reality is to speak narrowly. For example, to say trees are plants is to say that trees aren't animals. Rocks, love songs, or Super Bowl rings. In other words, when you make a positive thing like trees are plants. You are saying at the same time, they are not animals, they're not rocks, they're not love songs, and they're not Super Bowl rings. When we say something is, we are necessarily also excluding whatever it isn't. What cannot simultaneously also be true for that to be true. In other words, when we say, hey, this is true, at the very same time we are saying these other things at the same time cannot be true if this is true. In other words, there is a negative aspect to it. And I think the American church has been so pushed, like, be positive, be positive, be positive, be positive, be positive, that we've reached a, maybe a a critical point where nobody understands the negative or just thinks you can have the positive and have something that's really at the same time completely opposite and somehow they're both correct or right. They go on to say this, if that sounds too philosophical, here's a theological example. There is only one God. That statement of truth demands the negation of a whole host of other potential statements. If it's true that there's only one God, then it cannot be true that there is no God or that there are 10 gods or half of a God or any other number. Truth is particular or specific because God is particular and therefore truth demands to be taught in a particular way. Now let's add 
to the specific, spe- let's try to be specific here, specificity, if I can say the word right, of truth, the transcendence of biblical truth. Solomon's synonyms for God's instruction are in, in scripture, in scripturate, if I can read correctly today, uh, Solomon's synonyms uh, for wisdom, correction, instruction, reproof, and Proverbs 3 imply that we creatures will need to significantly change our thinking to learn what the Bible teaches. He even explicitly says that if we would be biblically wise, we must not be wise in our own eyes. To learn specific truths from the Bible, then we will often need to set aside some incorrect preconceived notions that we hold. Without explicit denials, we will always try to fit a new paradigm into our existing framework without upsetting the cognitive apple cart, so to speak. All right, now let's try to take this apart. There's a lot here. All right, now according to them, if we're going to be very specific, we're going to add some specificity to this discussion, then when we talk about, say, the transcendence of biblical truth, they look to Solomon as an example. Solomon gives synonyms for God's wisdom, all right? Correction, instruction, reproof. This implies that we creatures will need to significantly change our thinking to learn what the Bible teaches, right? When you say correction, instruction, and reproof, that one of the ways we learn wisdom is by being corrected, by being told what is incorrect. The only way to gain that wisdom is to be corrected on the wrong way of thinking. That's what this seems to imply. In other words, a negative has to be mentioned. The negative has to be taught. All right, let's go with this idea. Then they go on. He, speaking of Solomon, even explicitly says that if we would be biblically wise, we must not be wise in our own eyes. And then here's here's kind of the key. To learn specific truths from the Bible, we will often need to set aside some incorrect preconceived notions that we hold. In other words, if you're going to really learn the Bible, you've got to get rid of some wrong ideas. You've got to get rid of some wrong notions. If you're really going to grow in biblical wisdom, you've got to recognize and see the wrong way of thinking the worldly wisdom, the fleshly wisdom, the the wisdom that comes from below. You've got to get rid of that. So in other words, they're saying that even in a sense to grow spiritually requires not only the positive affirmations, but the understanding and rejection of the negative. The negative has to be pointed out. They go on to say this. Without explicit denials, we will always try to fit a new paradigm into our existing framework. If we don't have an explicit denial, that is not true. That is not biblical. That is incorrect. If we don't have the explicit denial, what people will do, they'll take the positive command, the positive affirmation, and simply fit that in to a pre-existing paradigm of thinking where now they have the positive along with what the positive should cancel out and they won't even realize this. 
Like if we, we always try to fit the new paradigm into our existing framework without upsetting the cognitive uh, apple cart. In other words, we're like, okay, here's my paradigm. All right, oh, there's a positive thing. I'll just bring it in. I'll just add it to without ever stopping to go, no, 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 I got to get rid of the entire apple cart, the entire way of thinking. I got to throw out my entire paradigm. My entire paradigm is wrong. Well, the only way to ever do that is in teaching. I got to say, this is what, here's the positive, but here's the negative. Here's what is not, the Bible is condemning. The Bible is, is excluding these things. And they have to be named and we have to be specific because we will simply fit into our new paradigm. We will bring in, or we'll try to fit in a new paradigm into our existing framework without upsetting the cognitive apple cart. Giving boundaries to our teaching helps us correct our natural earthly thinking about transcendent heavenly truth. In other words, you have transcendent heavenly truth. We try to fit that into earthly thinking. Unless we are specifically said that earthly thinking is wrong. That is incorrect. You've got to point it out and condemn it in the teaching. You've got to not only give the positive, you've got to exclude and condemn and reprove and correct the negative. They go on to say, suppose, for example, that one day you're teaching about the deity of Christ to a group that has never heard of Christianity. You tell your listeners, Jesus is God. Amen. But just what are they thinking about the deity of Christ at that moment? Might they be thinking, as any person reasonably could, with, uh, with that much information, that you meant Jesus is, is only God and not also human? Might they think that you mean that Jesus is one of God's three forms that he takes, not that he coexists with the other two persons of the Trinity? Might they even suppose that Jesus was a mere man who became God? And every one of those assumptions would be a major Trinitarian heresy that you did not intend to teach. In other words, simply just saying Jesus is God, you don't know what else they're they're taking that and, and they're taking that new paradigm and fitting it into their old framework. And who knows now what they've come up? They will say, "Yeah, I believe Jesus is God," and then turn around and say four things that you're like, "What? No, if Jesus is God, that's incorrect. That's incorrect. That's incorrect." That's incorrect. That's incorrect. That's incorrect. So you have to say, here's what the Bible teaches, and here's what it's not saying. Here's what it is excluding. Here's what has to be condemned as a result of this positive truth. I I think that makes sense. The point is, if we don't tell them what the Bible doesn't mean by a positive statement, then they're likely to think in ways that work on a human level about divine realities that that don't work that way. God's thoughts are higher than our thoughts. If we would learn to think with the mind of Christ, then we will need need the help of corrective negations that shows us that the truth, what the truth is and is not. Bible teachers should often say this and not this. The nature of divine truth demands the clarifying of teaching about what the Bible doesn't say. Now, sometimes you say, okay, this is what we are claiming. This is not what we are saying. This is not true. This is not right. This is not acceptable. This is heretical. This is condemned. That we need the positive, but you must get the negative. If we say this about the Trinity, we are not, in other words, one God 
coexisting three distinct persons. We are not saying one God who manifests himself in three different ways. That's modalism. So, in other words, when we give the positive confession or the positive statement, we've got to then come back and say, but it, we're not saying this because that is wrong and that is wrong. That is, that is wrong. And it seems that a lot of preachers exclude the negative aspects to it. They go on to say false teaching exploits what the Bible doesn't say. Now, that's interesting. False teachers exploit, false teaching exploits what the Bible doesn't say. The crystallization of precise doctrine through the history of the church has almost always occurred as a response to false teaching. Arius's false Christology gave rise to the Nicene Creed. The Roman Catholic Church's indulgences provoked Luther's 95 Theses. The swelling influence of liberalism instigated the fundamentals, and so on. The church's true doctrine has been purified in the furnace of controversy arising from false teaching. That's why so many creeds and confessions include both positive affirmations and negative denials. For example, here's one of the 12 anathemas accepted by the Council of of Ephesus in 431 AD. If anyone declares to say that Christ was a God-bearing man and not rather God in truth, being by nature one son, even as the word became flesh and is made partaker of blood and flesh precisely like us, let him be anathema. Now, that is very true. The early church would not only give you the positive affirmation, say, in a creed, but then in the council would release these anathemas saying, "If, if you say this, anathema. If you say this, anathema. If you say this, anathema. Because they're saying, here's the positive affirmation of the faith, but that excludes all of these other ideas, all of these other manifestation of theological ideas. Those are excluded. Those are condemned. Demonstrating that you need both the positive affirmation and the negative condemnation. You have to have both. That's what they are asserting. Here's another example from the Chicago Statement on Biblical Inerrancy from 1978. We affirm that the Holy Scriptures are to be received as the authoritative Word of God. We deny that the scripture, Scriptures receive their authority from the church, tradition, or any other human source. They affirm and they deny. They proclaim and they anathematize. That's the way the early church did things. In both cases, the negative denials were aimed at a specific false teaching and even false teachers. They affirmed the positive teaching, but undermined it by some errant definition or nuance. That's how false teachers always work. They disguise themselves as messengers from Christ, trying to sound like they are part of the same theological team, but then they secretly introduce some destructive deviation from the truth. If you were to read the doctrinal statements coming out of the prosperity gospel churches, you'd probably agree with almost all of it, if not all of it. False teachers want to sell on on the boat of true doctrine while they drill holes in the hole underneath. Church history teaches us, then, that wise teachers will be careful to both explain what a given passage means and does not mean to protect against false teaching. In other words, false teachers will will give will go along with the positive affirmation, but then they bring in all of these other things. So you've got to be able to say, yes, this positive affirmation would exclude all of these other things. 
The people have to know not only the, 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 the positive affirmation, the positive truth, they've got to know what that truth excludes. If they don't know what it excludes, then they become vulnerable to false teachers who ride in, in a sense, on the ship of false of true doctrine while they're drilling a hole in the hull. They'll, they will ride in the ship going, see, and they sound right. They sound good. But it's what they will not condemn. It's what they will not speak against. And it's what they begin to actually begin to teach. All right, now we're almost done here. If the nature of transcendent truth and the collective wisdom of the saints doesn't compel us to teach what the Bible doesn't say, then perhaps the Bible itself will. In Scripture, we see God's prophets and preachers exposit previous biblical revelation both by giving positive agreements and noting critical contrast. A few examples will suffice to prove this point. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus brings applicational clarity to the law of God through negation. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say unto you, do not resist one who is evil. The quote shows up in some form three times in the Torah, Exodus 21, Leviticus 24, Deuteronomy 19. So it's not an obscure passage that Jesus addressed, but he instructs the crowds how to think rightly about these texts by telling them what the text isn't saying. Specifically, they don't say, resist the one who is evil. Jesus applies the principle of the whole law to clarify what a godly application of the law looks like, and he does so by saying what wasn't in the passage, right? Um. While this, while he finally to, uh, or Paul does kind of the same thing, constantly anticipates perversions of biblical text and responds to objections before they can be rendered. For example, in discussing election, Paul quotes Malachi chapter one, verses two through three. Jacob I love, but Esau I hated. Paul considers what someone might say in response, namely that God isn't just to choose one and not the other. And so he responds by addressing what the text doesn't say. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. Knowing where an opponent might wrongly go in response to the text, Paul cuts off the errant theological reasoning at the pass. He does not simply state the positive truth of election, but goes on to deal with the potential implications of that doctrine, both what it implies and what it does not. So Jesus went beyond just what, here's, here's what the text says, but he goes beyond that, right? Do not lust, but he goes on be, beyond what it simply says, giving maybe not only the positive, but maybe the negative implications of what is being said. Paul does the same thing. He almost anticipates, okay, I'm going to talk about election and someone could say this. Maybe he's addressing what someone was actually saying, but in either case, he gives the positive and then speaks of the negative things someone could say or what could be left out or what people could ignore. The Apostle John. The Apostle John teaches with, with, uh, with simplicity the truths of the gospel. And his clarity often comes through the use of negation. John writes, this is the message which we have heard from him and proclaim to you, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. 1 John 1.5. So Jesus told the apostles about the character of God as light, not darkness. John then goes on to say something that apparently wasn't a part of the explicit teaching. If we say we have fellowship with him 
while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. Though this is a natural implication from the first statement, it is not explicit. John teaches what wasn't said to clarify what was said. He didn't just string together a list of positive doctrinal statements or quotes, but he expanded on them and enriched his hearers' understanding by showing them both what those statements mean and do not mean. So the next time you're up to teach God's word, ask yourself, is there something that this text doesn't say that should be said? Of course, we should always begin with the clear positive argument of any text of scripture, but we can deepen and clarify our understanding of that truth when we also know what it's not saying. And what's in that sense, teach what the Bible says and what the Bible doesn't say. Or think of it this way. We need to teach what the Bible positively or positively affirms. Let me state it this way. We need to teach the positive affirmations of Scripture, whatever truth it proclaims. Then we have to demonstrate what that positive truth negatively rejects and condemns. Okay, if this is true, that is wrong. Okay, so I think that's the first principle I want you to get from this, all right? That when whatever we say, whatever positive affirmation is made in the Bible, we have to teach what it negatively condemns and excludes. That's got to be mentioned, or people will take this positive affirmation and fit it into their previous way of thinking, which leads to heresy and all kinds of bad ideas. So here's what the Bible says. This is what, therefore, it clearly condemns. Second, I think what we also have to do is we have to emphasize, here's what the Bible says, and then clearly demonstrate what it is not saying. It says this. It is not saying this or that or that because people will take what the Bible says and then really just go crazy. Just they'll just they'll they'll quote they'll they'll come up with ten principles and you're like, wait a minute, are you sure that's what that verse actually says? Because it sounds like you are coming to conclusions that are not actually in the text. We got to teach the positive affirmations and the negative results of those positive affirmations. We've got to teach what the text clearly says, and then we have to clearly demonstrate, hey, the text is not saying A, B, C, D, E, F. You're adding all kinds of things to it. All right? I think that is important. Uh, okay. Uh, yeah, there's some more they can say here, but I'm going to stop right there. So, two concepts. Teach the positive affirmations and then also teach the negative consequences of that positive affirmation. Teach the clear words of Scripture, but then you may have to say, and clearly on some passage, this is not saying this or this or this because that's not what it's about, right? Just because God promised people who came out of Babylonian captivity that he knew the plans he had for them to bless them and to prosper them, that is not saying that he's planning on doing that for us because the clear teaching of that passage is that's referencing people coming out of Babylonian captivity. Sometimes you've got to give the positive, but you've got to clearly demonstrate what is not being said. Not only is that a positive thing, what there we, we've got to show what the Bible is clearly saying 
and then make sure we, we, we in, a, in a roundabout way, protect that verse from people coming along, making it say something it doesn't, teaching them what it doesn't say in that sense. They're focusing on more of the negative. Hey, here's the positive affirmation. Here's the negative consequences. I got that. I want to add to this concept that not only do I teach what the Bible clearly says, I do have to sometimes come in and say, but wait a minute, it's not saying this. Where, where do you get, sometimes I'll do that. Someone will start, they'll quote a scripture to me. Like it's sometimes so weird. Like someone wants an argument and they'll just throw out a scripture, right? And I'll just look at it like, okay, that scripture is not saying what you say that it's saying. Where, 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 how are you making the scripture say that? It doesn't, where does it say that? And like they'll throw a scripture and I'll just be looking at them like, okay, I, I, I agree with that scripture. You're saying that it says that, where does it say that in that scripture? And they'll say, but, but, and then they'll, they're trying to, and you're like, no, no, buts to it. What, where does it say that? You, you're putting words into the mouth of scripture that's not there. So I think there's two aspects here. We have to teach not only what the Bible says, but we have to teach the negative con, con consequences of what it says. And whenever we teach what the Bible says, we have to clearly teach them what it does not say so that they will not add to it. There you go. All right. Because, uh, well, because it's important because we see a lot of this. I, I, I feel like I, 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 there's, there's some profound points in that. And I have a feeling a lot of people may not have gotten those profound points, but there are some profound points in that. But we're just going to have to stop right there. And th this will probably show up somewhere else. It probably will. I'm making sure no one placed any comments in uh, Discord or anywhere else. But uh, yeah, there we go on this Sunday afternoon. I thought it was worth, uh, worth working through, making sure nobody's posted anything. I think we're good to go. All right. We'll stop right there. All right. Everyone have a great day. You can email me, newsif at yahoo.com, newsif at yahoo.com. God bless.